we find a way to make those financial experts that were normally inaccessible more approachable? And is there a way to sort of democratize access to them? And the solution that Wisest represents is what if you could build your own team of financial experts, almost like it was fantasy football, and invest directly through them so you wouldn't have to navigate financial markets by yourself and pick stocks by yourself. And if we can find a way to make that economically viable for financial experts, which is what's so great about the wisest business model, then it's a win-win for everybody. Let's discover the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. We are telling the stories of its entrepreneurs and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with William J. Littlefield II. Billy is the president and chief technology officer of Wisest, where he is helping to build a next generation investment trading platform that democratizes access to financial expertise. Wisest recently closed on 1.5 million in financing and was featured in Forbes as a better solution to the problems posed by Robinhood. Billy has an eclectic background, spending more than a decade training with various Olympic coaches and athletes in the sport of ice skating, qualifying, and competing at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships as a single skater. Prior to Wisest, Billy spent a lot of time outside of the world of software development, academically working to reconcile 21st century technology, politics, and economics with longstanding concepts in philosophy, where his recent research has been divided between applied ethics, social theory, and artificial intelligence. Specifically, he has explored the ethics of technological progress and its impact on climate justice and geopolitics. Billy earned a graduate degree in world literature and philosophy from Case Western Reserve University here in Cleveland, where he also received a degree in natural sciences with a concentration in chemistry. I very much enjoyed this conversation spanning everything from how Wisest is working to democratize access to financial expertise, to Billy's path to Cleveland, to digital nomadacy, to philosophy itself. I hope you all enjoy it as well. Billy, I've been uh, very much looking forward to this conversation, perhaps unbeknownst to you, investing and uh, financial enablement are topics after my own heart that I am personally very passionate about and genuinely really excited to see real innovation coming out of, of Cleveland, making it easier for folks to pull on those financial levers, which historically uh, have been siloed and inaccessible to, to many. Um, so, so thank you for coming on and, and very much looking forward to this conversation. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be here. And I have to say your own ideas have been after my heart as well. I have long thought that the Cleveland community could use a cool podcast just like this. And navigating entrepreneurship in Ohio in general uh, has been a challenge that I, I would have loved to have hear from more entrepreneurs about before I had to do it on my own. So I think you're doing us a great service and excited to be here. Oh, I, I appreciate that. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure we'll unpack some of those those challenges uh, over the next hour or so. <laughs> Before we we maybe dive into to all of that, as well as kind of the the core focus of of what you're working on uh, at Wisest, I, I'd love to start with just your own you know background, your your path to Cleveland, your interest in in entrepreneurship, and maybe you know paint a picture of the the threads um, that that tie your 
your career together so far? Absolutely. Well, I know that I have a relatively unusual path to the Cleveland, Ohio area. I grew up in Dallas, Texas. I was originally born in Chicago to two great supportive parents. Both were self-employed, which certainly left an impression on me. But we quickly moved to Dallas when I was a young kid. And like most kids, I grew up playing soccer and little league baseball. But one of the formative events that happened to me as a kid was in 1999, the Dallas Stars won the Stanley Cup. And so every kid in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, as we call it, wanted to learn how to play hockey. And so I began going to the ice rink with my parents to do hockey classes and learn to skate classes. And when I was there, I was approached by a coach that asked my parents whether or not I'd be interested in some private lessons. I was one of the smaller, younger kids on the ice, and I had a little bit of trouble skating backwards, which I know that many people do <laughs> when they're first learning. <laughs> my parents said, sure. But the caveat was he wanted to teach me half hockey, half ice skating, and that decision ended up changing my life. So not long afterwards, uh, while I was a kid roaming around these ice rinks, um, there was an interesting phenomenon that happened in Dallas at the time, which was this combination of the economic prosperity there with all these new facilities started attracting a lot of world-class coaches uh, to the area to start working both on hockey and on ice skating. And so I ended up getting pulled into the orbit of some Soviet Olympians that began coaching in the area not long afterwards and actually spent most of my youth and teenage years uh, training as a competitive ice skater and competing at U.S. Nationals and doing that sort of thing. And that's actually what indirectly brought me to the Cleveland area because there's only a few metros in the United States where you can sort of train seriously as an ice skater. And Cleveland happens to be one of them. So when university came around, that is what took me to Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll follow this detour for a bit. You know, how, how did your ice skating career d develop from there? Sure. I would say the most interesting part from maybe an entrepreneurial standpoint was, I think, learning to spend time training with these folks. It provided me uh, a few key insights, the first of which was that, frankly, there's nothing like a Soviet Olympic champion screaming in your face that you're a spoiled kid uh, to teach you what hard work looks like. <laughs> uh, so so I, I think I had the opportunity to learn some of the lessons of self-discipline and, and high performance a bit younger than my peers. The other thing that was maybe interesting was that something you learn when training in an individual sport like skating especially an acrobatic sport like that, is one of the ways you can become adept at that quickly is if you're just willing to throw yourself into the ground um, when you're encountering a new trick or a new maneuver. So basically fail fast. It's sort of startups 101, right? And that also imbibed in me a, a lesson about basically being willing to 
take the hard path or take the unconventional path is a way to both overcome my fears and also acquire a skill set more quickly. Um, and that ended up lending itself very well to startups in the long run. Mm, no, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And I, I'd love to, as we work our way towards, you know, your interest in entrepreneurship, I, I know, you know, the path perhaps wasn't a direct one and, and, uh, you know, you traversed in, in the interim there through some, some academia. How, how did you kind of navigate your own process coming out of, of school and, and your, your own interests from there? Ah, yes. How did I get from A to B here? How did I go from skating to, to the startups? <laughs> so not long after moving to Cleveland, I ended up having another pivotal event in my life, which was I ended up having ankle surgery during my freshman year of university. And that also ended up being a pretty important year in terms of my skating career. At the time, it was 2014, so it was the Olympic qualifying season. And shortly after having surgery, I was sitting at home in crutches with a cast on, watching a lot of the people that I grew up with qualify and compete at the Olympics. And so as I was sitting there doing some soul searching, that was the first time I ever heard about a pitch competition. And so I was sitting there feeling a bit sorry for myself, but I had certainly learned to get back up on my feet after falling down, training all those years. And so I decided that I wanted to occupy myself by maybe embracing some of these pitch competitions that were being held in the Cleveland entrepreneurial ecosystem. So that was my first exposure to pitching a VC. And I had the good fortune of being one of those nerdy kids that had played around with coding, building websites or video games in high school. And so I naturally had an inclination towards maybe looking at software startups. And that was sort of the first event which started pivoting my life from athletics toward entrepreneurship. And so as we make our way to, to Wisest, democratizing access to financial expertise, it's really a, a ambitious vision I'm always really fascinated by uh, where the founding insights to these kinds of uh, visions uh, stem from, and so I'd love to hear, you know, about the founding story of Wisest. What were the what were the questions that you were asking at the time? What were you trying to validate? Where did that vision for the future come from? And and uh, you know, who who else was involved in in helping you work through this this process? At the time, I began looking at Wisest. The first thing I should say is what most entrepreneurs know is that it's rarely the case that your first startup is successful. Just like everything else in life, startups tend to have a learning curve, and it's not necessarily a very forgiving one. And entrepreneurs should probably do a better job of talking about more of their early failures <laughs> than, than we tend to. Everyone loves to talk about the romance of the idea or the glory of raising venture capital, but usually there's a few steps before that that aren't so so glorious. But I, I, I actually built my first startup in the Cleveland area around retail flash sales. So that was a mobile application-based startup where the idea was that brick-and-mortar stores could send out a push notification to anyone within a specific radius that said, 
30% off the next 30 minutes only. And that was the first startup that I really pursued with any seriousness and found co-founders and began the venture capital process. But as, as with many other entrepreneurs, I faced some co-founder issues on that and eventually walked away from that venture. So I decided I never wanted that to happen to me again. I happened to be CEO of that venture and my co-founder differences were with the CTO. And so I thought, boy, I should really go learn how to be my own CTO. And so I decided to spend some years in industry at Southwest Airlines and at Visa learning how to become a, a serious software engineer, learning how smaller and larger companies scale software. So afterwards, I returned to the Cleveland entrepreneurial community and let some folks know that knew me when I built my first startup that I was interested in consulting or helping some startups with figuring out the right approach to software for whatever idea they were working on. And so at the time, I was helping out people like Bob Sopko at, at, at LaunchNet over at Case Western. And I was kind of, the, the, descript, the descriptor we were using was something like a developer in residence. At the time, he knew that I had just left Visa. And so he suggested to me, you know, there's this French guy that just came to town that you should really talk to because he's interested in banking, but he doesn't know how to write the software for a startup and he hasn't pitched VCs before. And so I think you guys might compliment each other. And so that was my co-founder, Axel Thabone, who currently serves as the CEO of Wisest. I'm president and CTO, sort of his right-hand man and manage the engineering side of things. But we sat down at a Starbucks in Beechwood and he began telling me that he thought there was maybe a way to scale financial expertise to a wider audience. And the story goes something like this. So Jeffrey, imagine you have just gotten out of school or really just imagine you have just begun working your first full-time job, right? Hmm. So something that most people learn by osmosis is that investing seems to be an important part of their financial future. The next logical step, at least for the last five or 10 years, tended to be something like, okay, well, maybe I'll download Robinhood and check it out, see how I get started. The problem is, of course, you download Robinhood and a feeling that a lot of people experience is okay, I have the app on my phone, but I don't know how to pick stocks. I'm not a stock picker. I went to school for software engineering or, or to become a lawyer or a doctor or something else. Or, or maybe this is just my first full-time job and I'm, I'm, still work, I'm still in high school or something, but I just want to get started investing. But I don't, I don't know how to pick stocks. So the next thing you might do is Google financial advisor or financial planner. And the uncomfortable reality you'll experience there, of course, is that those people don't necessarily want to talk to you unless you have 50 or $100,000 in investable capital. And then the final thing you might do is say, okay, well, how about some of these robo-advisors, which have grown increasingly popular, Acorns, Wealthfront, and I went down this exact same path myself, Jeffrey. And so 
when I was hearing Axel describe what he thought were some of the problems in the ecosystem, I could see this same narrative play out because I had personally experienced that frustration. You finally arrive at these robo-advisors and you get the sense that you're supposed to deposit your money and go away. <laughs> there's, there's not really an opportunity to, to <laughs> pick your own stocks or, or learn about what kinds of trades you're supposed to be making. It's not so different from depositing your money in a, in a money market account or something like that. And many people that download Acorns or, or, or sorry, uh, Robinhood or, or Coinbase are, are often interested in participating in the stock market, having some agency over their investments. And so the key idea with Wisest was, can we find a way to make those financial experts that were normally inaccessible more approachable? And is there a way to sort of democratize access to them? And the solution that Wisest represents is, what if you could build your own team of financial experts, almost like it was fantasy football, and invest directly through them? So you wouldn't have to navigate financial markets by yourself and pick stocks by yourself. And if we can find a way to make that economically viable for financial experts, which is what's so great about the wisest business model, then it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, no, the, the vision, uh, I mean, again, personally resonates quite a lot. You know, my, my own path to investing I found was a little atypical, but I think in retrospect, it, it kind of... Uh, brought me to similar conclusions, I think, to to the ones that uh, you just outlined. Uh, but I was quite lucky, you know, early on in in my education in middle school, I got to participate in uh, in what the New York Stock Exchange held annually. It was like a virtual stock market game, and so in sixth grade, I got exposure to uh, the market uh, as a twelve year old in, in a way that it just it really had me uh, fascinated by the way that it worked and, and coming out of that experiment, you know, I had made fake money and it kind of uh, started my, my journey of learning about what the market is and, and how it works and, and getting interested in, in all of the, the intricacies of, of what's actually happening there and, and the strategies around it. And, but no, I, I think I, I ultimately found similar burdens to entry for a lot of folks who, are interested, know that they probably should be investing, but but perhaps don't know the best way to to start. And so I, I think this this all resonates very much uh, with with my own personal understanding of it as well. Absolutely, and I think for everyone that I knew at university or just among family and friends that was using an app like Robinhood very confidently, I had twenty friends or family that were just afraid to get started, knew that they were supposed to be investing or that it was sort of the prudent thing to do. And they wanted and even envied those people that seemed to know what they were doing trading or, or following Wall Street bets or people that seemed engaged with the community. They, they just seemed to feel like trading was a little too complicated or intimidating. Some people even found it boring. And so we had to find a way to try and make it more engaging and accessible uh, than, than the current paradigm. And that's what we tried to do. So again, it's a, it's a really big vision, right? Like democratizing access to financial expertise. When you were thinking about, you know, what does an MVP look like 
and going from, you know, zero to a workable prototype, you know, there's all these, I imagine, regulatory hurdles that you have to surmount, you know, working and building in the, in the financial industry. Uh, there's the whole issue of, you know, how do you inspire and engender trust in, in, the, in the, the folks who will be using the application to invest? Like really, I think hard, hard problems, probably harder than, than some other uh, startup endeavors. You know, how, what, what did the earliest part of this process look like, you know, actually building the, the product? I'm so glad you asked that, Jeffrey, because it is a pretty provocative endeavor to go and try and build a new trading platform, I have to tell you. So I, like so many entrepreneurs, was inspired by things like the Lean Startup. And when I built my first startup in Cleveland, I had assembled a prototype that I took to market on iOS and Android in about six months with a small team. Conversely, with Wisest, it's taken us almost a three-year journey to get to market. (laughs) And that is because starting a new trading platform is extremely capital and and regulatory intensive. The difference between Wisest and a lot of other new fintechs out there is while there are available social trading apps where you can maybe copy the trades of your friends or see what some experts are doing. A key difference with Wisest is that we actually execute your trades. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because if you're just creating a stock market app where you can simulate trading, such as the New York Stock Exchange game you were just talking about, or you're just making an app where you can learn from your friends about investing, then you don't have to worry about these regulatory hurdles. But if you do want to actually execute trades in the way that you can pick stocks or pick a portfolio of stocks that actually executes a trade on a stock exchange, then you have to get SEC approval. And SEC approval requires you to file with the SEC, of course, run through many legal processes And you actually have to integrate with what's called a custodian broker dealer, which is a firm that specializes in executing trades that are actually with the stock market. So most mobile applications connect to one of those. And then eventually, if they grow large enough, such as Robinhood has, then they'll eventually begin replacing that that software with in-house software. So the journey for us was complicated as a direct result of those hurdles you were just referring to in terms of of capital and, and regulation. What it meant was that we couldn't realistically build an MVP of wisest in the fullest sense that that really executed on the core functionality, the core vision, until we had SEC approval. And we couldn't get SEC approval until we'd raised capital, which meant we had to somehow justify to a group of VCs that we were going to try and build a very thorny, complicated kind of startup without necessarily having had a a co-founder that had exited before or that had built a similar fintech. We all had relevant experience. But it was still a tall order to convince a VC that we were going to run through these these obstacles. 
So what we ended up doing with Wisest is we ended up building a free beta simulator. So we had a beta simulator version of our application that mimicked all of the trading functionality and much of the vision I had just outlined. And all it did is it simply allowed you to participate in contests, just as you've described with the New York Stock Exchange, except you weren't trading real money. But what that meant was, was that we basically had to build a simulator product solely for the purpose of convincing venture capitalists that we could actually execute on such an ambitious vision. It turns out this was quite difficult because <laughs> in, instead of actually just trading stocks and using back-end providers that could execute these trades and hold actual accounts, we had to simulate all of that. So we had to write software that basically simulated trades and simulated uh, account transfers in addition to just creating a mobile application. We had to, to basically mock what our production backend would look like. And so we ended up building an MVP that became much richer in its social features, in its gamification features, in its market data than your traditional MVP would. So the upside of that is our MVP looks more like a, a 2.0. <laughs> the downside is, is it took us years to build. Right. It's always the catch-22, I feel like, with raising capital to surmount the regulatory hurdle um, before you can kind of get your first customer's revenue in the door. What what was the the vision that, that you were painting uh, for the for the VCs and 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 what do you think ultimately convinced them to to support uh, you and, and your team in, in this endeavor? There are multiple answers to that question. I would say first the vision was straightforward in the sense that many people were able to relate to the narrative that you and I just both said we empathized with. They had kids that had this experience. They knew people that were friends and family that also felt similarly intimidated by, by trading and investing. Even if they were successful venture capitalists themselves, they knew this was a common problem. So that wasn't necessarily a tough sell. The best value that my co-founders brought to the table here was that they just had this world-class experience in relevant industries. While I was maybe the only co-founder that was familiar with early stage startups or how to code, they had deep resumes in launching digital banking products, working at large enterprise software companies like Amazon, and some of them had attended MIT. And MIT has, of course, one of the most famous alumni networks in all of investing or venture capital. And we were able to leverage that angel investing network to get our very first small checks. But the real thing that ended up convincing additional investors and sort of our first big breakthrough was when Carl Rossner, the former CEO of E-Trade, heard about Wises and said, that is an idea that's gonna work. And so Carl has been on our advisory board and has been a great supporter of the company in other ways. 
And once we had Carl's seal of approval, that is when I think other people in the industry began to take us more seriously. One of the the things I imagine that many of the the VCs would bring up in in these conversations with you and, and something we've already talked about here is 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 how much competition that there is in this space. You know, we've already kind of mentioned Robinhood, um, some of the robo advisors, but it's really not like a blue ocean scenario. I feel like anecdotally, it's almost weekly that I'm learning about a new investment platform or, you know, having my friends who, who know I'm pretty passionate about the space send me different, you know, tools or, or startups to look at. You know, how do you think about the somewhat daunting task of differentiation in such a crowded space? And then I'd love to also get your perspective and, and maybe work through actually a few competitors specifically about, you know, how they've been structured and, and how, you know, Wisus differentiates and, and, and really how Wisus is making money through this business model. So I would say the key differentiator with Wisest is, in a word, behavioral economics. It's basically that investing is a deeply psychological process. Obviously, our emotions are wrapped up in it. So much of investing literature, especially, say, value investing, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, many of the, the wizards of, of Wall Street talk about how investing is more about temperament than it is about intellect. And that's because money is so personal, of course. And how you invest it and how you're going to plan your future are, are deeply personal. And they're, they're emotional. So one of the key insights with Wisest is that instead of just setting up a intimidating quantitative trading platform or presenting you with a investing product, say a portfolio or robo-advisor that meets certain metrics or criteria, the key insight with Wisest is we want you to invest with people that you trust. Find an expert on the platform that has a background you feel comfortable with, that explains their portfolio in a way that you feel like you can understand and get behind it, and that is investing in stocks that align with your values. So we put the human connection front and center. Find experts that are resonant with you. And we have large profile pictures and detailed resumes, almost like a financial LinkedIn profile. So you can get to know the people that you're going to be investing with as you build your team of experts to invest through. So that insight of trying to make investing more human because the feeling of investing is deeply emotional and human was maybe our key differentiator. And as a venture capitalist, it's probably something you're also intimately familiar with. You, you know, you invest, at, you know, in entrepreneurs you believe in, not just, not just business models, but teams you like. So the human connection was resonant with the people we were pitching this to. In terms of actually trying to compete with a lot of the other products out there, you're absolutely right. It's an increasingly crowded space. The other component of how we're trying to address our market 
is many of the new fintechs you're hearing about, many of the new tools, like I was just referring to the social trading apps where you can copy the trades of your friends, so often those are tools that complement some apps that you might already have. If you're interested in a social trading app where you can copy the trades of your friends, that probably means you already use something like Robinhood or another trading provider. And you're going to add these different tools to help you pick stocks or to help you build a community around your investing as supplemental tools to the trading you're already doing. So, so many of these tools are aimed at people that are already active in the market. But just like we began this conversation, for every one person you seem to know that is very savvy on how to use all of the available investing tools that are already out there, you know 20 friends and family that want to get started but don't necessarily know how. And so we're aiming for the 20, and everyone else seems to be providing more and more tools for the one that's already invested. On the building an expert network, you know, one of the things that I, I think is always really important is the whole fiduciary responsibility, right? Like, you know, fiduciary to a financial advisor, what being a, a board certified licensed doctor is to a doctor, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, making sure absolutely. that they have your 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 best interests at heart. And and one of the things that I've been really curious about just learning about Wisest and the work you're doing is is how you all have thought about, you know, digitizing fiduciary responsibilities and and vetting advisors and and the the process by which you're pulling people together on the expert side to you know what what are I guess the the measures of accountability and and how you're thinking about that generally. So I'm so glad you asked because this was an idea maze we spent a lot of time on. <laughs> the first question about making sure we're recruiting qualified experts is relatively straightforward in the sense that as long as financial services have been around, there have always been there's always been a desire to make sure that qualified people are providing advice when it comes to financial services. And so there are already many exams and certifications that I'm sure you've heard of, like the Series 65 and Series 66, the CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst Program, that provide credentials to ensure that financial professionals have a certain degree of fiduciary understanding, a certain degree of financial expertise. And they, of course, also often have lengthy ethics components to those as well. That being said, uh, obviously, we would be a little bit naive if we assumed that just because you passed one of these exams, you were going to necessarily have everyone's interests aligned. Otherwise, Wall Street would never get in trouble. So the way we try and align incentives at Wisest is we do a few things. So the first is... We compensate experts based on a few different variables. Basically, each expert on Wisest is providing a certain portfolio model that you gain access to when you allocate them to your team. When you add an expert to your team because you've seen their profile, you like them, you trust them, you want to invest in the same things that they seem to believe in. And so you decide, okay, I'm going to invest 
30% of my portfolio with Jeffrey. Well, the next thing that we provide to you is Jeffrey is also going to have a risk return and user satisfaction score. That user satisfaction score is exactly what you'd expect from something like an Amazon or Airbnb review. It's one out of five stars, and it's how well Jeffrey seems to be communicating with his investors. It's whether or not he is continuing to apply the sorts of models and principles that got you interested in him in the first place. And then the risk and return components we tweak to ensure that what experts get compensated on is on having high user satisfaction with low risk. So we actually will adjust an expert's compensation and reward them for having good user reviews and for having lower risk portfolios. We multiply those variables based on the actual number of dollars that are allocated in Jeffrey across the whole platform. So it's kind of assets under management, but Jeffrey is always going to be mindful of whether or not he's satisfying his users and whether or not his risk rating is within a reasonable bandwidth that it's not going to negatively impact his overall compensation too much. Got it. So I, I understand how I would make money <laughs> as a as an expert here educating on the on the platform. H- how is it that Wisest itself is is making money through the through the through the platform? So we charge a straightforward subscription fee. After doing a lot of user surveys, we looked at many of the different options for how you would charge for an investment trading platform. The old school way of doing it, of course, was to charge a kind of transaction fee. And this is exactly what the earliest platforms like E-Trade did, is you would have a commission on the trade. And we explored that model, but after speaking to many users, so many of them told us, you know what? I would rather just have the peace of mind of knowing that this is going to cost me a certain amount of money per month, somewhere between, you know, something like Spotify or Netflix that I don't have to worry about in terms of every time I trade, I'm going to get charged. I would rather just know that this is going to be a line item that I'm comfortable with. I've, I've accepted that this is going to cost me about as much as a lot of the other subscriptions I use. And what we do at Wises is we take part of that subscription fee and of course use it to build a platform, add new features, promote new experts that you might be interested in. And then we take a slice of that and that is what we use to compensate those experts. So we're using a subscription model based on the idea that most users of of mobile apps today just feel a a greater comfort level with, with with that model. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's obviously in stark contrast, right, to the to the Robin Hoods, where when you don't necessarily understand how the company makes money and that all the transactions are are free, it's ultimately that you know you and your data is the the product that that they are selling, right? Yeah, paying for order flow. So that, of course, has been under tremendous SEC scrutiny. Uh, there will be, I think, an ongoing question as to whether or not that will remain legal. I think that most people find it ethically 
uncomfortable <laughs> would be a nice way of putting it. Uh, but you know, commission-free trade isn't really free if if you're getting charged a kind of a kind of arbitrage fee because someone purchased your order flow. Right. So I guess just kind of taking stock of where the company is today, having secured the financing, making your way through the the regulatory uh, maze that that you have. You know, where where is the company today? How how are you thinking about? Uh, the next, you know, year and change, um, and and w- what has you most excited about about that looking forward? Of course. Well, the most exciting thing that we have on our agenda, of course, is is taking the wisest from the beta simulator, which we ran for about six months, and we have now finally walked through all the steps of SEC regulatory approval to begin sharing the wisest product beyond our internal stakeholders. Basically, we're going to be having a, a launch party sometime in the next 30 to 60 days where we get to share this product we've been working on for the last three years with the whole world. What were the biggest insights from having set it up in, in such a way that you had users, but, but that it, it wasn't you know, real money? What, what were some of the things maybe that surprised you that, that you didn't anticipate going into, into that so we had many surprises during the, the beta launch that, that were useful. The first of which is that many people probably think that they approach investing from a highly analytical, logical point of view, and that, or maybe even a selfish point of view in the sense that the only thing they're interested in is returns, right? I want to invest my money in the way that makes me the most money back. But one of the things that we learned during the beta was that it's just not true that everyone thinks that way. Many people are willing to make a little bit less money on their investments if they feel like they're investing in products which are less risky, that have less downside risk, obviously something that many people are mindful of right now. There's also the fact that many people really want to invest with people that have a portfolio aligned with their values, right? This is ESG. Many people are willing to invest in ESG portfolios, even if they don't think it'll necessarily outperform the NASDAQ, because they think it's the right thing to do. And that's a totally valid point of view. The other thing is, is that people frequently want to invest with experts that they like. For example, Jeffrey, obviously, we're both sitting here on this podcast as proud Clevelanders. Well, what if I told you that one of the top performing portfolios is maybe from a Cleveland State alum or a Case Western alum? That's something you might be interested in. Uh, Or someone from your own alma mater, Cornell, right? Yeah. So there's just all these different touch points with investing that are not just this quantitative dashboard you see with a lot of the trading products out there. And and many of these factors ended up being things that our beta users told us, hey, put this more front and center. I want to see the profile picture of this financial expert before I see their performance chart. I want to know what they're all about before I decide whether or not I even care about how well their portfolio is doing. So that was an insight. Uh, Another key insight that we had that we got really excited about was if you look at a lot of these investing products, they are 
boys clubs. Um, investing has long had a notorious gender problem. And one of the things we found with the beta was that something about the team building aspect, something about our approach to wisest was drawing a 60-40 split women to men. So we were seeing a very different demographic that was joining the beta and interested in the platform than users on Wall Street bets or users of Robinhood and Coinbase tend to see. And so we were very encouraged by that, knowing that many people and that obviously many professional women clearly aren't finding those products to be as approachable for them as Wisa seems to be. Mm, that's that's fascinating. I think that that kind of aligns with you know what you were mentioning earlier, how in, in a lot of ways investing maybe is less about intellect and, and optimization of returns and, and has a lot more to do with that psychology, your own, you know, risk temperament. And that, you know, it's it's one thing to I think to to read about and try and learn about the the market, but I, I think in practice, it, it's always better to learn uh, in practice than it than it is in theory. And so, you know, until you have money in the market, experience your own biases, financial psychology, tolerance for risk, and like outlook about you know where you wanted to deploy your your money in, into things that align with your own values, can be kind of theoretical. I think that's that's really one of the the cool things about what you're doing and trying to just get people to to start. I think that that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate that, Jeffrey. We, we hope so too. We think that just having a knowing a, another human that you can talk to and learn from on the other side of this equation simply makes the whole process a lot more approachable. So we we've kind of covered off uh, two of the three tenants uh, that that I've kind of picked up from Wisest about empowerment and education. But the third you know, kind of core tenant there is, is about enjoyment. And so I'd love to understand how, you know, where gamification comes into, into the equation here. And as you're, you're thinking about that, you know, how ultimately you are, are thinking about success and, and growth as a, in relation to that, that gamification concept. So the gamification piece is, is something that we're, we're quite excited about because we think we have found a way to avoid so many of the pitfalls that these other trading platforms fell into with gamification. The biggest problem that many of them had was often rooted in simply how they made their money, right? We make our money from a subscription model, straightforward, flat. So we have no incentive for you to trade more or trade less. But of course, so many of these platforms that were doing the commission-free quote-unquote trading were making their money by selling your order flow and letting someone else charge you a tax further down the pipeline. And the behavior that that incentivized for them was that obviously if you're selling order flow, the more orders you have, the more you have to sell. So they began just as a result of those incentives to motivate people to trade more. And so all of their engagement was often based on active use on how many transactions are you conducting per day and and how often are you checking your investments. Pretty much the opposite of what every prudent investing book will teach you to do. (laughs) 
right. <laughs> make, make smart investments that you trust in and let the market d- do its magic of compound returns. And, and don't worry about trying to be a penny trader or, or, or trade in penny stocks or, or trade in volatility or, or, again, a lot of the sort of risky strategies that we know can be uh, particularly turbulent for, for newer investors. So with Wisest, because we don't have that incentive problem, we can think about trying to make gamification actually aid you in being risk averse or in being or in managing your risk in an appropriate way for your your portfolio uh, that's suitable for your for for your your risk tolerance. And the way that we do that is instead of trying to encourage you to trade more, we try to use gamification to help you pick investments that are best suited to you. So one of the ways that we do that is every expert on the platform, you may have been wondering, you know, how do I find these experts? Well, one of the ways that you can find them is that every single expert is organized into a totally transparent leaderboard. You can just see top to bottom, who, which expert on Wisest is doing the best for the quarter, for the month, for a three-month period. As we've added experts to the platform, we're building out actually a whole leaderboard engine where we're starting to organize these experts into different kinds of quote-unquote leagues where you have, here's all the experts that have renewables portfolios. Here's all the experts that are targeting minority-owned businesses. Here's all the experts that trade in high growth technology startups and giving them each their own leaderboard. So you can then go in and see who's up for the month, who's up for the quarter, who's up today. And that gives you, again, just an immediate intuitive, you don't have to do the research on the actual stocks. You don't have to go on Yahoo Finance and see what the volatility is for this particular stock or or look at any of the market data to find out which portfolio makes sense for you. You can just see on the leaderboard who's up and who's down. Anyone can understand that. It's probably one of the first UIs in a trading app that a five-year-old can understand. (laughs) So you can immediately see through the leaderboard what's going on. And again, it provides a degree of intuitiveness through gamification. So we use sort of a gamification feature to make the app more intuitive. The second way that we are using gamification is we're also celebrating these different kinds of financial experts by trying to promote different experts through different kinds of contests. So you can see which expert was maybe the best performing female expert on the platform for the month. And if so, then we're gonna highlight her. We also have the opportunity to promote user performance. If you wanna share your details on Wises, you can enter into different contests with your own team. No different than fantasy football, where you pick a team of experts and you see whose team is scoring the most points, who's performing the best week to week, month to month. And you can do that on maybe a regional basis and also with your friends. So again, this isn't about trying to promote speculative trading strategies. It's simply about trying to make trading more fun and engaging for you. And it's also about trying to help you find experts that 
fit the investment criteria you're looking for. You know, speaking of financial psychology and and risk and and people's tolerance for it, I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask about, you know, building wisest here through arguably the most severe market conditions, certainly since the Great Recession, but even in many quantifiable ways since the Great Depression, you know, the stock market crash in the <laughs> many years ago. You know, I'm I'm curious your your thoughts, observations, reflections in kind of navigating the the market that we're in now when people are are maybe at their most pessimistic about being involved in in the market. In terms of trading platforms as a whole, you know, if you look at the entire fintech sector, yes, I I would have to agree, no doubt that investing apps uh, and fintech in general is probably seeing some of this pessimism directly feed through in just their customer behavior, their customer acquisition. But I don't think anyone doubts that fintech is not going to be the way of the future. That even if fintech is taking a hit because the whole market is taking a hit, clearly fintech is going to be a strong market, strong sector, strong industry as we come out of this recession. And where I guess we're not quite technically in recession yet, what we'll call we'll call it turbulent markets for now. Uh, I don't think we've quite hit that second GDP indicator yet, have we? The upside for Wisest is that this is precisely the kind of scenario that it would, of course, be nice to have a human coach guiding you through a market downturn. If you had the option to be trading on Robinhood, or if you had the option to have financial experts coaching you through this downturn, saying, hey, here is how I'm adapting your portfolio to meet the different obstacles that are upcoming in the market. And here is how you need to set your expectations for what the portfolio is going to do. Would you rather have that or would you rather be on your own? Right. No, I, I think the the dynamics here lend themselves quite well to the the model that that y'all have in place. The human touch, <laughs> I think, is one that's that's sorely missing in a in a lot of not just even fintech, but uh, many of these platforms today. I couldn't agree more. In, in terms of the the venture capital market, I, I definitely have to say that we're lucky to have raised with some terrific partners, and we're not in a situation where we're going to run out of capital anytime soon. We've been able to navigate all the way to this point with a relatively small and distributed team. And so since we did have all those years to build out the platform before getting the chance to really take it live, we're not in the same rush that maybe some other products are to take a, a limited MVP and, and get out features that, that are the intuitive next steps, we have many of these features beta tested and built out uh, in a more full-fledged way than, than most startups do when they're taking their first product to market. So I know outside of, of Wisest, you have really kind of a, a breadth of interests, many of which I wanted to, to ask you about. I know we're running a little up on time here, but I think all, all really related in a lot of ways to the, the entrepreneurial journey and, and the way the, the world is, is changing today. Um, but maybe just you know, kind of a, a, a brief pass on, on some of these detour topics. But I know you, you know, 
in parallel to all of this, have a an interest and background in, in philosophy and have thought specifically about the the intersection of of entrepreneurship and philosophy. And it, it just frankly sounds really fascinating to me. And I'd I'd love to understand <laughs> how how it is you're thinking about those things. <laughs> yes, thank you, Jeffrey, for for inviting into the conversation. That's that's absolutely true. I I am a uh, philosophy nerd. I love to speak at philosophy conferences and participate in the philosophical community. And I, I love to ask big questions and, and certainly uh, incorporate philosophy into the wisest product wherever I can. So, for example, our, our first version, of course, is, is named after Heraclitus, uh, the philosopher most famous for, for change and dynamism and, of course, being very early. And so it was fitting for, for our, our first version of the product. But uh, philosophy, I think, is a perspective which encourages you to be skeptical of foundational uh, or orthodox views. Basically, I think if you are coming from the perspective of philosophy, you grow very comfortable with the idea of asking skeptical or critical questions about maybe something that seems to be a very established idea. And so that might be, in philosophy, that might be, what is the right theory of justice? But this a similar set of skills, or at least a certain kind of skeptical mindset, can be brought into the question of not just what is a good theory of justice, but what is a good theory of finance? What is, and just this willingness to try and reason for yourself from first principles about the right way to approach a problem, I think is so similar in entrepreneurship and philosophy. It, when, when you are starting a company as an entrepreneur, so frequently you have to have the audacity to look at maybe a very established industry and think to yourself, even though there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people all employed working on this, this status quo product, is there a different way to do this that I can arrive at by just sort of thinking about it from first principles? Are there new tools or technologies which have made new options more attractive that that were feasible before and it's very similar in philosophy where you take maybe a long-held theory about the way the world works and you ask yourself is there new insights from human psychology or from political theory that tell us that maybe this sort of foundational view could be improved and the Willingness to, to reason for yourself, the sort of famous charge from Immanuel Kant to, to dare to know, dare, dare to think for yourself, separate, uh, is, is I, I think, central to both philosophy and entrepreneurship. Yeah, no, it's interesting to hear you talk about that, because I think the way that, that I've kind of pieced together the life cycle and, and trajectory of a lot of businesses is often that, you know, the business that a company was founded on is not often the business that a company succeeds with, right? And there's there's a there's a pivot and and learnings that happen along the way. In a lot of ways, the overlap in maybe philosophy and entrepreneurship is about 
truth seeking in a lot of ways because I feel like much of startup success is is simply trying to stay alive long enough to continue to ask more questions. And as long as you're asking questions and, and learning, you're you're typically uh, making good progress as a as an organization. I completely agree. I, I think I think they're both about trying to find, as as Elon puts it, the signal in the noise. Yeah, yeah, that, that's very cool. Definitely a bunch of threads I'd love to pull on there, but I'll <laughs> I'll turn our attention to uh, digital nomadacy, which I know is something you've been practicing yourself. It's it's obviously something that I think societally a term maybe that folks didn't even know two years ago, and and over the course of uh, our familiarity and comfort with working remote and being remote uh, is something maybe that societally we've we've been exposed to, but I'd love to get your perspective on on what it means and and how how you've gone about it and some of the the insights that that you've gained from from doing it. Yeah, so I'm actually talking to you from Las Palmas, Gran Canaria, Jeffrey, and right now if you if you go to Nomad List, which is probably the most popular platform among digital nomads, Las Palmas happens to be number one. For, for nomads right now. So it's it's a popular spot and it's got a cool community of, of people that are passing through from all walks of life. But I actually began working as a digital nomad actually a couple of years before, before the pandemic. Uh, I, I, it might've been actually just about a year. But the beauty of being a digital nomad is I find it teaches you that if you can't take something with you, it's probably not that important. (laughs) It's either the kind of thing that will be waiting for you when you get back, or maybe it's something that is a material possession that was, once you got on the road and had to live from a suitcase, you realized it was nice to have, but maybe isn't necessarily something that made you feel like you were making progress or 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 something that you needed to continue better in your life so it it pairs with a kind of minimalist lifestyle uh the other thing that being a nomad teaches you i think of course is it's a kind of rapid course in neurodiversity you get to obviously explore so many different cultures in rapid succession and it keeps you constantly moving and thinking about the next thing. And the fun part about that is the things that you keep taking with you from place to place, when you're constantly changing locations, the things that end up staying the same are the same projects you're working on, the same things that you're trying to build, the same ideas that you're tinkering with. That's what ends up staying constant those end up being the anchors in your, in your life. And, and that's what I meant by a thing, you know, if, if you can't take it with you, it's probably not important. Well, these things that give you purpose or a sense of identity or a sense of place, the, the ideas that you have or the, the things that you, you might be trying to, to work on or build for yourself, those are the things that end up being what anchors you. What I find is that, of course, when you're at home, so many things so easily get in the way of that story that you're telling yourself about 
the things you want to pursue or the things that you want to work on. It becomes just incredibly easy to find distractions in the way of chores or remodels or maybe committing to activities that take a lot of time but maybe don't get you any further to your goals or, or maybe aren't even necessarily something you're doing because you enjoy it but it's maybe sort of a, a kind of obligation. Um, so being a digital nomad is is meditative or, or, or it allows you a kind of clarity of mind. It's for one just fascinating to hear your perspective on it. The kind of maybe close out that that thread with, you know, how you think about it from a, a company building perspective and the the kind of culture that, that you're able to build around, you know, really being f- fully remote. I would say it ended up being a strength for us at the beginning of the startup because by the time that Silicon Valley and venture capital started going remote, we had already been working remote as a team for a while. And so as a direct consequence of that, we were maybe more prepared to, to, to pivot to, to the remote world than, than ever than other startups were, were. The aspect of trying to build a team and a culture, I will admit, has been challenging in ways. I would say maybe the most challenging for me personally was so much about really early stage startups. I mean, truly first steps is about the camaraderie of building that MVP in a garage. It's almost like starting a band. (laughs) And you have to have that kind of intense brainstorming, a kind of intimacy with your co-founders where you are willing to maybe work harder and longer at a problem than you would if it was just any other task at work. And so the option to do that in person also gives you the opportunity to to build this kind of extremely profound trust in your co-founders that is going to allow you guys to, or allow ladies and gentlemen, to, to, to walk through a bruising process of, of building a new company. And so it's, it, it, it's, it can be difficult to, to form those bonds remotely. But the truth is, is that every other company that was a startup had to face these same hurdles as we did. So, so that was reassuring in the sense that even if we were struggling with trying to push through the difficulties of the pandemic and push through the difficulties of working remote, even if we had the difficulties of not having that same garage band intimacy that is, is so much part of the romance of an early startup, every other person was also going through that same event with COVID. And so it wasn't as if the odds were stacked against us or if it wasn't as if there was an alternative to us working together easily in person uh, or pitching in person. So simply knowing that all of humanity was kind of collectively going through this with us made it, while still complicated, it made it clear that some other companies are going to make it through and we can too. I'll tie it back here from from the 
world of remoteness and, and digital nomadacy to, to Cleveland specifically uh, for, for our closing question, which is for not necessarily your favorite thing in Cleveland, but for something that other folks may not necessarily know about, uh, a hidden gem, if you will. Boy, that's a that's a tricky question. I feel like you've had enough guests where I'm worried I might not have something so hidden <laughs> after all. So I would say the thing I maybe miss the most from Cleveland that has a special place in my heart is the Provenance Cafe at the Cleveland Museum of Art. I wrote uh, <laughs> many papers, many theses on philosophy in the cafe at the CMA and also built many pitch decks there. And it's just one of the best places, I think, in the Cleveland metropolitan area to go uh, have a coffee, feel inspired, and get some work done. Mm. Well, I think uh, despite your, your fears there, that, that you have a novel one. That, that is such a great spot. <laughs> have you been there? I have, yes, yes. It's quite lovely. Yeah, it's terrific. <laughs> I'd imagine it, it inspires the, the, the kind of thinking that, that you would be doing there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you know it. And uh, yeah, it's, I couldn't recommend it more if you're looking for a place to, to think of a new startup or, or even write some code on your current one. Yeah. Well, well, Billy, I, I really appreciate uh, you coming on and your, your time today and, and, and telling your story and, and the work you're, you're doing at Wisest. Again, just personally, really excited about uh, what you guys are doing and, and uh, wishing you all the best. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you to all of the listeners out there in the land. Yeah, yeah. If any of those listeners had something they would like to follow up with you about, what is the, the best way for them to do so? We can be contacted at infowises.com if you want to ask us a direct question about the company. If you're interested in following up with me personally, I'm available on Twitter at WJLittlefield2, uh, since I was named William J. Littlefield II, <laughs> and uh, certainly on Instagram as well, where I have a, a link tree to other articles about philosophy and and even a couple clips of Triple Axel. <laughs> That's awesome. We'll have to check that out. Well, Billy, thank you again. Really do appreciate it. Thank you, Jeffrey. Cheers. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.